about. In some respects, today's talk is a little bit of an overview, and in the next uh, three and the next three weeks, we'll unpack some various aspects of what Christianity is about. So that's where I'm hoping to go. I'm going to finish at 10 minutes to the hour. So if you're concerned, you're not going to get to your next class. Keep an eye on the clock, and I'll be done by 10 too. Okay. Um, now there may be a couple of people here today uh, who are Christians. And I hope that if you've uh, started university and you've uh, found the right lecture theatres this morning, uh, that you're, as Christians, that you've come to the right place at an EU public meeting. Can I say a warm welcome? It's so glad to have you with us today. There may also be other people here, though, who uh, aren't Christians and are interested in investigating what Christianity means. Can I extend to you just as warm a welcome? We're really pleased that you're with us today. One of the things that I want to try and do today is speak to both groups of people. For those of you who are Christians, you may have been Christians for a number of years. You may have grown up in a Christian family. Uh, you may have only recently been converted. Uh, for you, I hope that you take something out of today's talk by way of encouragement as you uh, hear again the groundings of the Christian faith. And if you're not a Christian, then can I encourage you to engage actively? Because if you're not a Christian, you may have a couple of objections to what I'm going to say today. And I want to be upfront about that. And these objections may come for a number of reasons. Firstly, you may object to Christianity, and it may be on the grounds that you don't know much about Christianity, and so your objections are ill-founded. In which case, can you please object? Please ask questions. Please be interested and eager to learn a little bit more about the objections that you have. Uh, secondly, some of you may be here today and you may have objections uh, because you doubt that Christianity actually works. You think, well, it's a great story that I was told at some point, but I'm not actually sure how I can make it work in my life. My challenge to you, not only today, but in the next couple of weeks as we engage and look at what the Bible says about what it means to be a Christian, is have you tried it? Or are you only observing what others say about it? And the third objection you may have may come from what I might call an immature view of Christianity. You may be someone who perhaps went to Sunday school and you know the stories but as you've grown up and you've become an adult, you think that they're just that, that they're just stories and have very little relevance in your life. If that's the case, can I encourage you to engage and engage at a level that is appropriate for your maturity? No longer engage like a child, but engage as an adult robustly and honestly. Uh, so I'm going to be speaking for the next couple of weeks. I thought we'd start by uh, giving you a bit of an introduction to the way the Bible uh, understands the world. And let's start with some uh, really interesting facts, which you may or may not know. Now, for those of you who normally come to public meeting, the speaker doesn't often wander around. Uh, so you just have to be used to walking back and forth. There are approximately... zeros on the end of that number to know how big the universe is that I exist in. 
as far as we can tell, this is the observable universe. And it contains approximately... Yeah. What if I just do this? <laughs> that many stars. How many of you are from the country? Show of hands. Pick your hand up. Do you miss the stars? You miss the stars? How many of you have never been to the country? Great. So you know what they're missing out on there. But when you go outside at night and you look up into the sky, you see the stars. Admittedly, you don't quite see that many of them, but you see a fair number of them. This is the universe that we exist in. Those stars are organised into approximately, and at this point any error is almost meaningless, 80 billion galaxies. Now that's a number I can vaguely comprehend because I hear about things like budgets and deficits and... Not my household budget, by the way. <laughs> this is the number of galaxies that scientists think exist in the universe. And we, on this particular planet, exist in one of those galaxies. Hands up who feels a bit small and insignificant. Because I tell you what I do. You've just made it to uni, you're in first year, you're actually now feeling small and insignificant again. You used to be at school and you used to know most of the people in your year. You used to sort of rule over those year eight, type those year eight annoying little kids. And now you feel a bit insignificant again because you walk onto campus and you're not sure where you're going. You don't really know many people. Well, in theory, this is how we all feel when we start considering the reality of the universe in which we exist. Uh, a couple of years ago, they estimated that there were approximately, approximately, species of vertebrates, mammals, birds, fish. Now we're sort of talking sensible numbers, aren't we? This I can relate to. At least if I could put one of every kind in one place, I could vaguely have an idea of how many that is. With about 1.2 million invertebrates. And we are but one of those. Such is the diversity and the complexity of the planet in which we live. Such is the scale of our insignificance. I want to suggest to you that the Bible outlines a grand story or grand narrative of the way in which the world came to be and speaks very clearly of the way in which the world is now. Uh, the Bible, for those of you who may or may not know, is really a collection of books. In many respects, it's like a library. Uh, we often consider it as one particular book, but it really is a collection of books that were collected over many years, uh, edited and collated by various people from various sources. If you are interested in hearing more about it, we'll talk a bit more about it next week. Christianity believes that the Bible is an authoritative book. Christians claim to be people of the book. They say that is our source of authority. That is the place we go to when we want to know about the world and about the one who made it, God. It's interesting to note that in the beginning of the Bible, uh, well, most things have a beginning, and here is the creation. The Bible's claim 
is that all that we now observe, both in terms of number of galaxies, numbers of stars, and species, was created by God, the God of Bible. Now, leaving aside the evolutionary debate, because if you're interested in that, we're speaking on the first chapters of Genesis in our public meetings later on in semester for three weeks. I get the joy and the privilege of trying to unpack Genesis for you. So let's come and have the debate about evolution then. Although it does make you wonder whether or not all of this evolved from that. Anyway, we'll ponder that later on. But notice that the Bible's claim is that God creates, that the world has a beginning, and that God creates how? With a word. God speaks. And all of this comes into being. Such is the power of God. Now, our words actually mean things. But they're not nearly as powerful as the Word of God. Our words make an impact in the lives of others. But not nearly as much of an impact as the Word of God had at the very beginning in bringing all that we see now into existence. One of the things we hear about in the Bible story, in creation, is that the world is actually a place of order. God creates an ordered world. And there is order between God and man, and man to the creation. Such is the way the world was meant to be. Just as a complete aside, assuming, assuming for a moment, please, that there were this many species at the point of creation, we'll just leave the evolutionary debate aside for a moment. Uh, the Bible tells us that Adam named all the animals. Uh, that task alone, if it took on average one minute to name each of them, would have taken him about two and a half years, <laughs> with no rest in between, by the way. So assuming he works about an eight-hour day, he's up for about seven and a half years. Imagine his disappointment when he gets to the end and found no one suitable to be with. <laughs> Come back in a couple of weeks and we'll talk a bit more about it when we deal with Genesis. Uh, I was staggered to learn that there have been approximately... Hundred and forty-five million deaths in the last century from war alone. hundred and forty-five million, plus or minus about thirty million. The United Nations indicates that there are currently, currently significantly thirty significant major battles and conflicts around the world today, even as we speak. Uh, the way in which humans kill each other is staggering. Most of these conflicts are fuelled by either civil unrest and civil um, uh, hatred, and Africa at the moment is the continent which has experienced war the worst. breakfast. Um, perhaps some of you living by yourself might not have. (laughs) 
just over, it is estimated, one billion people across the world this very lunchtime are hungry. That's one in every six people on this planet cannot eat for all sorts of reasons. And yet we consume whatever it is that we consume, often not being mindful of this. Almost every day 16,000 children die from hunger. 16,000 children die every day from hunger. Uh, most of this is because of poor nutrition, calorie deficiency, and they die then from other related issues. All up, there were nearly 300,000 births in Australia last year. Yet on a worldwide scale, more children than that will die every year because of hunger. See, friends, the world is not right. It doesn't take much to observe that. It doesn't take much to observe the wars that go on, the fact that people cannot even have access to some basic necessities of life. And I'm not talking here about a three or four bedroom house with a swimming pool. I'm talking basically about food and clean water. So the Bible says that at a particular point, humanity has decided to rebel against God. And so instead of the world being watered, Man decides to say to God, actually, I don't want to live the way you want me to live. I think I'll live my own way, thanks. And as a result, the world is radically changed. See, humanity rebels. We decide not to live the way that God wants us to live, and we disobey God. And do you see where it's got us? We now don't get on with each other. We make it a science to work out how to kill each other better. And the old adage is true, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Now, you might think actually, all, like, I'm not like that. This happens out there in other countries. Oh, I actually think if you paused for a moment of self-reflection and considered the way in which you live and have lived over the last couple of years, that at times you would have exhibited those traits. At times, you would have wanted stuff that other people have got, and you don't have it. At times, you may have even taken it unlawfully. At times, you may have wished ill of your fellow man for whatever reason. The reality is that all of humanity is in a bit of strife. In fact, the world really is in a mess. In the Genesis account, the Bible tells us that God actually punishes humanity for rebelling yet does so in showing mercy at the same time. Now, the way in which the Genesis account talks about it is that uh, the garden in which man and woman were created, in which they lived an ordered life, is a place that humanity is now now no longer able to dwell in. And as such, God casts them out of the garden, yet he has mercy on them. He doesn't destroy them. He enables them to work. He clothes them. He enables them to be self-sustaining. Yet it's a clear recognition that the world is not the way that it should be. You see it again a bit later on in the Genesis account, Genesis chapter 6 to 9, when the flood comes. Oh, the flood, let's not start with the flood. Was it the whole world or just one particular sea? Was it just one area? Come back in a few weeks when we deal with Genesis and I'll try and work out what that's all about. 
One of the fascinating verses in Genesis chapter 6 says, God looked on the earth and saw that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. Wow. That's the way God sees the world. And so what does he do about Well, in many respects, God is trying to restore the world. And so what was meant to be, well, God enables the world to try and be restored again. He does it through the nation of Israel. And you see it in various cycles as you read through the Old Testament. Uh, when we do Book of the Year, Isaiah, Wednesday and Thursday, and we're going to be doing that throughout the year, you'll see various aspects of the way in which God deals with the nation of Israel and the way in which they relate to God. But one of the ways in which God does it is he enables Israel to create the temple. Now, I was always thought at Sunday school that uh, when the Israelites were first able to make the temple, they actually called it a tent, a tabernacle, uh, I just pictured this sort of, some bits of canvas and some poles and they carry it around the desert. Uh, as best as the internet tells me, partly because I didn't have the time to sit down and go through uh, numbers, this tent is worth about in today's terms 13 million dollars. Tell you what, when I go camping, it's the 250 dollar tent. <laughs> Imagine camping at a 13 million dollar tent. Now, just if you thought that was perhaps a bit extravagant, after all, it was a dwelling place for God. When they built the temple, the great temple, which David wanted to build, but in the end Solomon was able to build, do you know roughly how much it cost in today's terms? Let me give you an idea. About 56 billion dollars, such is the price of gold today. One building! $56 billion. The most expensive building ever built so far, as far as I can find out, but please go and search the internet and see if you can come up with something else. Uh, there's a hotel in Russia that's recently been completed and it costs them $1.4 billion. $1.4 billion. The most expensive hotel in the world. Uh, the, um, the tower in Dubai, now the tallest tower in the world, $1.5 billion. Do you get a bit of a feel for the significance of this building that God wants to dwell in? Do you get a bit of a feel for how significant this would have been for the nation of Israel to try and fix up what was going on? 56... I'll tell you what, do you know what was a little bit more expensive than the Tower in Dubai? It's actually within about 20 kilometres of us. There's a desalination plant over at Kernel. <laughs> $1.7 billion. There you go. See, God wanted to restore the favour of the world and do it through the nation of Israel. And what better place for God to dwell than a $56 billion building? Is it any wonder that the enemies of Israel looked at it and went, ah, we think we'll take that. And as history records, they did. They came and plundered the Israelites time after time after time. Apparently, there's about $56 billion worth of gold lying around somewhere. <laughs> Indiana Jones, eat your heart out. <laughs> See, God promised to restore the nation of Israel 
And yet Israel wasn't able to be restored. Because the kings just didn't follow the way in which God wanted them to live. And so what happens? Well, God sends his king to come. Now, at this point you should be saying, well, if he was going to come and live in a $56 billion building, what's he going to look like? I'll tell you what he looks like. He's the person of Jesus. Jesus is God's king. And notice when he comes, what would you expect him to do? Well, if you've got a Bible handy, open it and turn up to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. The king of Israel arrives. The great king. The one who's going to come and fix all the problems. The one who's going to restore the world. The one who's going to make sense of the fact that humanity can't get on with God. He's going to come and fix the problem. Notice how the Bible describes how Jesus arrived. If you read uh, some of the other Gospels, so Luke and Matthew, we're told about how Jesus was born in a manger. Born in a stable. Born with animals. What does Mark say in chapter 1? In chapter 1, verse 14... Jesus says this, The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. In Jesus, the kingdom of God has finally arrived. And Jesus, the great king's command, is not come and bring me your goods. It's not go and fight battles for me. It's repent and believe. Repent is one of those old-fashioned words that we really don't use very much. Uh, Although you drive past repent signs very often. Uh, Hopefully you've never actually seen one of these signs on the freeway. Because if you have, then you're going down the off-ramp. Perhaps you've seen it in your rear vision mirror. This is the repent sign. Turn around, you're going the wrong way. This is Jesus' words to his hearers. You're not part of the kingdom of God. Turn around and join the kingdom. And how do you do it? By believing. By trusting that the words of Jesus are true. And so Jesus comes. In Mark 8, if you flip over a little bit, in Mark chapter 8, pages turning, flipping... Verses 27 and 30. This is the claim that he's made of Jesus. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Now, Christ is really just a term that is used of Jesus. It's not his surname, by the way. I always thought it was when I was growing up because no one told me that it wasn't his surname. Now, can you see Mary and Joseph sitting around trying to name the baby with the surname Christ? John Christ? No, Elizabeth's already taken that name. Uh, what else can we come up with? What about Jesus Christ? That's a nice ring to it. It's not his surname, it's a title. And the title simply means anointed one. Uh, was used in the Old Testament, not only of kings, but also of prophets and priests. Jesus the Christ is a better way of using the term. 
This is God's great king. The one who has come to fix the problem. And you know what happens? Well, he's taken and crucified. Where is this great kingdom that Jesus speaks about? Where is the king of the Jews' kingdom? Surely that's the end of his reign once he's crucified. Well, the Bible claims that actually Jesus rose from the dead. Bible claims Jesus rose from the dead. And in doing so, enables a return to what was once creation. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead means that actually the world can now be restored, can be put to the way that it should have been in the beginning. And one of the claims that Jesus makes is that he'll actually come back again. See, when we look at this particular overview, we can summarise it in a couple of ways. There are the first days. There are dark days. There's the time of Jesus. And there's the last day. But there's actually one day missing, which I think is one of the most significant days. there is today. Because at the moment we live historically after the death and resurrection of Jesus, but I take it he's not yet returned. (laughs) Unless the people in Monty Python's time were right and they have found the Messiah. (laughs) See, people will come claiming to be the Son of God. But the Bible tells us that actually when Jesus returns, all of humanity will know about it at that very moment. Jesus will be revealed as the king over the world. Unlike Leonardo DiCaprio, who just claimed to be the king of the world. (laughs) Why is this significant? And what do we make of all this? Well, in the last couple of minutes. I think there's a couple of issues to consider. And as you approach a new semester, why not set aside some time to consider these issues? The first is, did Jesus even exist? For the claim of Christianity is actually quite a bold one, wouldn't you agree? That Jesus is in many respects the focal point and the centre of this entire narrative of human history. Both before and after his death and resurrection. If he didn't exist, it's meaningless. If Jesus did not exist, it's meaningless. And it's a great little theory. Did Jesus exist? If you're not sure, go and check out the sources. Investigate. Look for yourself. Consider the evidence for yourself. Come to conclusions. Secondly, but what of his claims? I want to suggest today that they are very significant. See, the early church argued that Jesus was the saviour. The early church argued that Jesus is the one who is able to make us right with God. Because as we've seen... Our natural state is to live as enemies of God. And we continue to do it to this very day. I'll take questions in a minute. Just tick. I've nearly finished. I know, I've got one minute and 15 seconds. I'll get there. Don't worry. I think the claims of Jesus are actually very, very significant. Third issue 
What does it matter? Are you not part of the creation? Are you not a created being? Do you not know that all is not right with the world? Consider the claims of the man Jesus. It matters because if the claims of Christianity are true, then he is the ruler over your life, whether or not at the moment you like it or not. And if the claims of Christianity are true and Jesus is the ruler over your life, then one day you'll actually go to see him. And he'll ask you to give an account of the way in which you've lived in his world. How then will you respond? For if you continue to ignore him, it comes at a cost. And these are some of the issues that I want to unpack in the next couple of weeks. How should you respond? Well, the first thing you do is grab a Bible, start reading. Start at Mark chapter 1 and read the Gospel. Consider the claims of Jesus. Talk to other Christians. Ask them why they believe what they believe. Keep coming to public meetings and possibly join a small group and investigate the Bible for yourself. Today, friends, may be the day in which you should turn back to God. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Can I encourage you to fill in the response slips and hand them in at the doors. We're going to serve afternoon tea out the doors and round to the right. And we'll see you back here next week.